it's Zoe Blasky and welcome to Motherkind, the show that's going to help you navigate the massive challenges of life as a modern mother with more community, confidence, clarity and self-awareness. Thank you for being here. I am so grateful that you pushed that little play button and you're here with me right now. So we all instinctively know how changed we are by motherhood, right? I felt so changed and transformed by it that I decided to make this podcast and create Motherkind and make it hopefully my life's work to empower mothers. But have you ever wondered what is actually happening in your brain when you become a mother? Is maternal instinct a real thing? If so, why does it feel so elusive for so many of us when we become mothers? Is mum brain real? Have our children really stolen all of our brain cells? And why do we feel so anxious in motherhood? Where does all that come from? This week's episode is going to answer all those questions and more. Health and science journalist and mother of two, Chelsea Connorboy, has done thousands and thousands of hours of research into the science of what happens to your brain when you become a parent. And what she finds is quite incredible. And it is all in her new book called Mother Brain, How Neuroscience is Rewriting the Story of Parenthood. I believe that when we can understand our experience, then we can have way more kindness towards ourselves about it. And when someone like Chelsea does all this incredible research and says to us mothers, no, you're not crazy. That is a thing. Then it is so, so, so powerful. That feeling of validation when you find out that something is a thing, and I'm doing air quotes right now. I know that you can't see me, but I am. That feeling is incredible, isn't it? And I think you're going to get that feeling a lot through this episode. So you're going to learn why maternal instinct is a myth and where that idea came from. Think about who it might serve to create that idea of maternal instinct. You're going to learn why worry and anxiety is so normal in parenthood and it's actually adaptive. That's what our brains are doing. And you're going to learn what changes happen in our brain throughout parenthood and why that actually gives our brain an upgrade for our whole lives. This is a brilliant episode. I hope you feel very validated. I hope you feel very seen and I hope you share these nuggets and help us bust these myths with other mothers and parents in your lives. Please do be that person in your circle, in your community, at school, at the nursery who is sharing this wisdom and knowledge. We really, really need to get it out to more mothers. So please help me do that. Here's the episode. Chelsea, we were just saying, I'm so excited to chat to you because your new book, Mother Brain, is so important and there is so much research in there that I'm just genuinely thrilled to be able to condense a lot of the key points that I think mothers need to hear with you. So thank you for being here and thank you for the book as well. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I was saying, I think you're doing such important work and I'm so glad that this book and that this conversation gets to be a part of it. So where I was going to start this chat has changed so many times over the last week. I was like, I'm going to start here. No, I'm going to start here. No, I'm going to start here. And sometimes I feel like with big topics like this, it's sometimes you sort of start right at the top at the start and then we can dive down. So I wanted to start just with this 
mind-blowing thing that I think we all know but is not talked about enough. And this is where you say in the book, and it's just so powerful, we are remade by parenthood. Becoming a parent changes our brain functionally and structurally in ways that shape our physical and mental health over the remainder of our life span. I mean, if that doesn't need to be like a billboard or certainly in every single prenatal course ever written, then what else does? Right. And why isn't it? I mean, that's really where this book started. I came upon this point as I was trying to find answers for my own experience of new motherhood. And I remember I would be meeting with friends and I would just say, but the brain changes. <laughs> In new parenthood, the brain changes. And that like really basic idea just felt monumental to me. And it really changed my own individual experience of new motherhood. And I felt like it should change so much else too, right? It should change how we talk about parenthood broadly and our policies and our clinical care. And it felt very big. It is monumental because I think when we can put words to an experience and not just words, scientific fact to an experience, it helps us understand ourselves. And when we can understand ourselves, we can have more compassion and we can have more agency about what we do with that change. So it's almost like hiding, quote unquote, I know no one's actively hiding this knowledge from us, and yet it's not been researched. And yet yours is the first book to really focus on this. So I think it's just that opening. If people take just that idea away, then that's massive. Absolutely. I mean, I that's like the bottom line for me, for sure. And how can we really understand our experiences and feel validated in what we go through without that, with, without that information? I mean, it's, it's pretty significant and long lasting. And if we leave that piece of the story out, I've done a lot of thinking about like, well, then what do we carry in its place? It's not just a a matter of like not including the science, but what are we saying instead? I suspect what we put in its place is there's something wrong with me. What do you think? That was my experience entirely. And I know from talking with lots of parents and reporting this book that absolutely that is a very common response. Because we have this idea, and I'm sure we'll get more into this, but of maternal instinct and the sense that this is supposed to happen, that we are already hardwired, that we already have this innate capacity to be a caregiver and we should know what to do. And for so many of us, it doesn't feel like that. And instead, there is this struggle and distress right alongside, hopefully, the joy and and wonder and love of new parenthood. But there's also this real grueling experience of transformation that we have too often not been given the words to understand. Let's go into maternal instinct because I think that's definitely the headline from your book. That's the big hitting bit that everyone's jumping on. So I definitely want to talk about all the other changes in the brain as part of this conversation. But let's start with instinct. So I'm going to summarize what I think are the findings because that will help me. And then we're going to dive into the more of the detail on that. So what your book really uncovered for me and underscored for me is that so much of the world, and you know, this is steeped in patriarchy, has taught us to believe that as mothers, there is an unused part of our brain that suddenly 
gets turned on when we become mothers called instinct, which will mean that we know what to do, that mothering is easy and natural and innate. That is a myth. That is categorically a myth and not true and deeply unhelpful. What is true is that not just mothers, parents, when we become parents, there is some pruning in our brain, which means that the part of us that enables us to connect with others and have connection and capacity gets bigger. And that the more time that we spend with our baby, the more attuned we get. And that is where this idea of instinct really comes from. And that is not a gendered experience. Have I explained that in summary? (laughs) I think you summarized it really well. I say it over and over again, that this idea that the capacity for caregiving is wholly innate and automatic, that it clicks on and is distinctly female. All of that is a myth. And it was written into science by by men who had this moral view of motherhood. And what actually happens is this transformation. You know, critics of what I've written have said, well, to get to this idea that maternal instinct is a myth, you have to ignore all of biology. (laughs) And I'm like, well, I actually have written a whole book about the neurobiology of what it means to become a parent. And what it shows is that it grows from the brains that we already have, right? So it grows from all of the brain that has experienced all of life that has come before and during pregnancy and childbirth. And we start there. And then through dramatic shifts in hormones, and the exposure to our babies, who are these incredible stimuli for the brain, we develop this parenting circuitry. And that part is true. Those two influences are true for gestational parents who experience that at a very intense degree. And also for other parents who commit their time and attention to caring for their babies and also experience hormonal shifts and also have that exposure to this powerful stimuli. Sometimes maternal instinct can be this kind of like comforting idea. Like there is like this biology that can propel us to do our best for our children. And I think that there's like some resistance to some degree of letting go of that idea, like this maternal intuition piece. I actually feel like the science in some ways is a stronger characterization of that. We do develop this kind of parenting intuition, but we do it through the work. It doesn't come automatically. It comes through trial and error and time. And it develops in response to our own particular children, in response to their particular needs and to the social context around us. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this a lot as well since reading the book, because I was thinking, well, it's true to say that I can look at my children and kind of guess what might be up and what they might need. But I now know that having you know, read your book, that the biology and that and the science of that is not because when they were born that flipped a switch, which meant that I had this innate understanding of them. It's because I have spent hour upon hour upon hour getting to know these little beings at 3am, 4am, 5am, 6am. You know, I've been so attuned with them. That is why I can look at them and say, she's hungry. Or I can look at them and say, something's happened at school. Not because of this switch that was flipped. And I was thinking about it actually with marriage. I was thinking it's true, isn't it? Like 
I can look at my husband and know what's up with him, not because I have a marital instinct, but because I've spent hours getting to know this person. And I think that's so fascinating and it has such wide reaching impact for equality of parenting and equality at home because people would say, oh, that's because you're the mother. It's like, no, that's because I spent the most amount of hours attuning to this other person who happens to be a child. Exactly. And others can do that too. I think that is such a good point. It also frees us up. On the one hand, it frees us up to see that like, it's not all on us, that our spouse, also grandparents, other extended family members can also look at our kids and help to meet their needs too. But the other piece that has been so, I don't know, freeing, validating for me is it also is a process. We're not supposed to look at our kids and know right away the first time off (laughs) what they need. So the brain, like one of the kind of central point of the brain is to predict our needs, right? So to predict our emotional, our physical, all of our needs, to, to figure out how to spend our energy and to use our past experiences to make predictions about the future. And when we become parents, the very same brain systems that are responsible for predicting our own needs, reading our bodily cues to figure out what we need and what to do and what's going to happen next are kind of extended to include our babies. But the way you get good prediction models is through errors, right? Like you don't get good future predictions without making mistakes. And so I think about that a lot in parenthood is like the mistakes are not a sign that this innate instinct in you is broken. It is you trying, doing your best, trying, making mistake, and then using that information to do better next time. The flip of that model in my mind has made such a difference in my day-to-day parenting, especially as my children are getting older and they have different developmental needs. And in some ways, things get more complicated and it's part of the process. The mistakes become part of the process. Yeah, I think that's such an important underscore. What really stood out there is you said that understanding this means that it takes the pressure off us as the mother and that grandparents, key workers at nursery, nannies, other siblings, partners can also get this level of achievement. And I feel like pre industrial revolution, maybe earlier, they understood this, right? This was why this whole phrase, it takes a village came from and something changed. And it's amazing. I love looking at the the history of this. And you say in the book that it was around the time of the Industrial Revolution when this idea became of separating off. No, a mother's work is in the home and a father's work is out creating that economic wealth. And we're still recovering, you know, recovering isn't even the right word. We're still steeped in that system, trying to break it and peel it back. But I feel like it's so validating and relieving because of the guilt that so many mothers feel for wanting to be a present attuned caregiver and wanting to be in the world. I feel like understanding this, that no, anyone that loves your child or is attuned to them can develop this sense of what they need. Yeah. And when you look at the research, I mean, even to some degree, very, really very much still today, although this is starting to change. I mean, so much of it, when we look at attachment theory and research around attachment, it is the mother and the baby and their studied 
in space, you know, as if they are a unit, a self-contained unit. And that is pretty much true for no families that I know. So I think it's a real problem in our understanding of child and family development. And it's just not the reality, but it has gone from that science to really be steeped in our understanding of parenthood and how we talk to mothers about what their role is. We often leave everyone out, everyone else out. It's such a powerful, important point, isn't it? So the first thing, the first big takeaway from this conversation is that instinct is not a latent thing that is switched on when you become a parent. It is something that attunement is a word that I love because it was something that grows over time, the closer you connect. And that is available to anyone. The idea of maternal instinct is scientifically a myth. I wanted to talk to you about anxiety So I know it's something that you experienced. It's something that I experienced as well. And I love how you talk about in the book that actually that heightened anxiety is part of these changes that the brain goes through. And it's actually part of the process. And that for me is just, again, like, why is this not spoken about? Because I actually don't know a mother who didn't experience anxiety. That's why there's all these things that we can now buy to help us reduce that level of anxiety, right? It's so normal to have that anxiety. Tell us about the brain changes that are happening when we feel that level of fear and worry. Yeah. Helena Rutherford, who runs the before and after baby lab at the Yale Child Study Center, told me that it's challenging to study maternal anxiety, like clinical maternal anxiety, because so few mothers don't endorse at least some symptoms of anxiety. So it's like hard to know, hard for them to even figure out what's normal, what's like adaptive and what's problematic in that context. And it's just so common. And this was really a key point for me too, because I I felt so overwhelmed with worry. My son was born on the small side. He was under six pounds and we were moving and doing a kitchen renovation and just like too much happening at once. And I felt incredibly worried about his well-being and my ability to feed him and, you know, his growth. I also was really worried about the worry itself. I felt like the worry was a sign that something wasn't working in me, that I was somehow like tainting his first weeks with all of my worry. You know, we hear about the way that stress can affect a pregnant person and then can affect a baby. And what about the cortisol in my milk? And I just felt like I failed him in those first times by being so overwhelmed, being so worried. And the maternal anxiety research is where I started with this topic. And it tells us that You know, in those early weeks, those early months, really, the brain regions that are involved with motivation and vigilance and meaning making are really highly active. And the way I see it sort of has two points. You know, one is to make us really intensely focused on our babies to keep them alive, literally, you know, to be able to do what we need to do to support them, even when we have no practical skills, perhaps, in doing so. And the other point is to make us really attentive to them so that we can go through this intense period of learning, of shifting our social cognition to get better at really reading and responding to their very subtle cues, or sometimes not so subtle, but nonverbal cues of what they need and figuring out how to read another person's mental state and respond to that. There's a sense that over time, 
we enter sort of a more regulated state where we are actually better at doing that, that we have heightened ability to look at them and figure out what they need. And that that is something that lasts perhaps over the long term. And so when I was able to shift that, I still worried, but now I felt like, oh, it's part of this process. It's something even productive, you know, or adaptive. And it's really helping me to pay attention to him and figure out what he needs. That just changed everything for me, you know, in the moment and also changed how I felt about my experience of those first few days and weeks. And I wish I'd had that information sooner, really. And I think another fascinating link to this is around intrusive thoughts. And I spoke to an incredible woman, Dr. Caroline Boyd, who'd done some research around intrusive thoughts and essentially found the same thing that I think it was 99 point something very high percentage of women had experienced intrusive thoughts. Now, when I had that, I genuinely thought there was something wrong with me. I had no idea that was completely normal. And that was as you're saying, the center of my brain responsible for protection, essentially going into overdrive because I cared so much. So I was imagining what would happen if, what would happen if, what would happen if. I think about it sometimes as like the window of our attention shrinks to like closes around our baby. And so the things that kind of like pass that plane feel really big, right? Like the real threats or potential threats. It's like a real shift in our focus. And the fact that we don't normalize that is really wild to me. I thought a lot in writing this book about, I wanted to be careful about how to talk about this stuff because obviously there are people who experience intrusive thoughts and it is really problematic for their well-being, their safety, their baby's safety, and their own mental health. We have a long way to go still, but we've made such strides in, in talking about maternal mental health and postpartum wound and anxiety disorders. And I, I didn't want to somehow undermine that and say like, oh, well, all of this is normal. And I worried about that. And then I came to this point of like, well, actually, I think what the science does is to make it easier to talk about all of it, right? So we'd like talk about like the real psychological distress we experience that is adaptive and typical. It becomes easier to talk about where that tips into something that feels unmanageable if instead of the narrative being you're sick and broken and a bad mother, it becomes you're going through this grueling transition and maybe you don't have the right supports or there's something biologically happening that's making it too much. And so we're going to provide these supports to you so that you can deal with them and heal, right? This like sense that you can and do heal. It's not like something that is inherently bad or missing in you, which is sometimes what I think people fear when they're experiencing struggle in those early months. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe, non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash motherkind. That's it. It's shame and silence, isn't it? Because if, you know, the research in your book was more prominent and we got it out to expectant and new mothers. So, okay, I'm experiencing intrusive thoughts. I know that's normal. That is going to mean that your shame doesn't silence you. So you might then share it, which someone might then pick up. Oh, hang on. That feels a little bit more outside than what we would expect to be normal. Let's have a look at that. It's that silence that is so dangerous, isn't it? So this narrowing of focus and I've read it somewhere, I can't remember if it was in your book actually or somewhere else, that part of that achievement is why our babies have such big wide eyes and look so cute to us to help us with that narrowing focus. Is that gendered or does that happen across all caregivers, that narrowing of focus? There's an older study that looks at parental preoccupation. This was by the Yale Child Study Center, and I can't remember the year it's it was like at least in the 90s or perhaps before, but it looked at a bunch of couples and looked at things like how many hours a day the parents spend thinking about their child and looked at things like intrusive thoughts. Do they go check on their children even when they know that they're okay? And both of those things were very common. Both men and women spent a lot of time thinking about their children and did that checking and had these fears that were sort of unreasonable in other contexts, I guess, about, you know, what was the dog going to bite the child? Am I going to drop the child? Am I going to fall down the stairs? And so it was common for both, but it was definitely more pronounced for mothers. But these were couples where the mothers were the primary caregivers. There's a study out of Israel that's fascinating by Ruth Feldman and colleagues. And they look at both same sex who are, are raising children and different sex couples. And that amygdala activation, which we all often think of as responsible for that sort of hypervigilance feeling, when you looked across all of those couples, the amygdala activation in the primary caregiving gay fathers and the straight women was very similar. So it doesn't mean that it's the same, right? It doesn't mean that no matter what your path to parenthood is, the brain changes are the same, but it certainly tracks like a similar pattern for non-gestational, in that case, non-gestational gay fathers. They have that more intense amygdala activation, and they also have those social cognition changes over time. So there's like a similar pattern. It's referred to as like a global parental caregiving circuitry. It's not identical. It's not identical from mother to mother either, but it is a pattern that's across sex and gender and gestation. That's so fascinating. We've spoken about instinct and we've debunked that. This sort of second bit that we've been talking about here is that the changes in our brain when we become parents mean that the amygdala, the part that is responsible for fear and that hyper-focus, that is totally not, not just normal, it's part of the process of becoming a parent that you could feel that in those early weeks and months. So it doesn't mean that because you're feeling intrusive thoughts or anxiety or intense worry, that there is something quote unquote wrong. Yes. I think it's interesting to think about how, you know, brain changes in an individual can feel different, might feel, we don't really know that much about this, but like might feel different person to person, partly depending on the social context. So imagine if you had had those intrusive thoughts, but someone had like, prepared you for that idea and said like, this is how you might feel. And maybe there was even 
a healthcare provider or a friend or a family member who was saying like, how's it going? And, and you shared that with them and they said, oh, that's really typical. It's because you're having this experience of, you know, hyper-focus to help you learn your baby. Would you have had less anxiety around it? I feel like I certainly would have and, and ultimately did, you know, when I started looking at the science. And so I think that's a really important point because our experiences from person to person are so different. And it's one reason why I think maternal instinct, the idea of it does hang on because some people feel that overwhelming warmth when their baby is born and then kind of it sticks, you know, like they, maybe they, they have that incredible bond like right away and have like a sense of peace and certainty in it. And other people don't. It's one reason why I love talking about attention specifically as like the thing that initiates the bond because maternal love, (laughs) love is something, you know, we talk about a lot, but when we talk about it often, we think it's a feeling, it feels a certain way, right? And attention is not a feeling. It's really an action. And so you can be really attentive to your child and it can feel like that overwhelming love that we often talk about in association with oxytocin, this like flood of warmth. And you can also be really attentive to your child and it feels like worry. In both of those cases, as long as you're sort of working through it and moving with the attention towards understanding your child, you're meeting their needs. It's a really important distinction because I did not get that rush of love and I was lucky that I was prepared for that. So I wasn't like, oh my gosh, I am the worst person on the whole planet. But actually, if I thought about it, I would have always known that that was going to happen because I've never fallen in love at first sight with anyone, not even my husband. It was slow. Friendships, slow. That feeling has been slow. And so, of course, it was the same with my children because that seems to be the way that I the way that I am. I want to ask you about another change in our brains, which we touched on briefly, but it's this theory of mind. So this compassion, because I've heard it described that when we become parents, we go from thinking about me more to we. And that is because this area in our brain responsible for compassion and thinking of others, so-called theory of mind gets bigger. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. So it's a tricky thing. The word I'm getting stuck on is bigger because it's actually like the opposite, which is remarkable. So their theory of mind is really like a network of brain regions. It's not one area, but the idea is the volume shrinks across those brain regions. So there was some very well-known studies that came out a few years ago and have been built on in the years since that looked at the brains of women before they were ever pregnant and then right after they had a baby and two years postpartum and now six years postpartum. Some of those researchers are also doing similar studies in fathers, but they have found that significant reductions in volume across that time and that last out to six years. And those track with brain regions associated with theory of mind. But the thinking is what we know, we know this partly from adolescence, which is another developmental stage with huge hormonal fluctuations and adaptation and changes in behavior, and also associated with increases in mental illness, that we know from adolescence that there is a shrinking across the development in in that time period also. And it's a pruning. It's what, to use your word, attunement, like it is a 
a pairing away of synapses that aren't needed so that those that are essential can really be strengthened. It's thought that the same thing is happening in parenting, that the actual volume is shrinking, but the idea is that it's really becoming more attuned to the needs of your child and the needs of parenting generally. And yeah, that is tracking with theory of mind, which is so essential to parenting. So it's our ability to read and respond to another person's mental state, to reflect that in our own bodies and to respond to it. And when you think of a baby, they are this tiny, vulnerable, nonverbal creature who is entirely reliant on our ability to meet their needs it is like this really essential skill of parenting. And it is one that is really different than meeting the needs of your husband. It's related, but meeting the needs of your husband or your friend or your parents or whoever who can communicate and who isn't like, you know, their survival in most cases doesn't depend on your ability to do that. So it's like this relationship that we've never had. Most of us have never had this kind of responsibility before. And so we've, it's like an actual like cognitive skill in a way, and we are developing it in parenthood across those brain regions. It's fascinating. And I think lots of mothers listening will intuitively know this. Like I used to not really cry at the TV. And since motherhood, I feel like everything, it's almost like I feel like my skin is thinner. Yes, yes. Like I feel way more connected to other people around me. And I'm wondering, is that what you're talking about? There's like very little research on this, what we're talking about now. But I'm fascinated in this point because what there is shows us, yeah, that we become better at responding to other people's mental states. Okay. And there's this one study that looks at that mothers also respond when they see other mothers interacting with their children in healthy ways. Like their response is basically to mirror that interaction in themselves. I'm fascinated in how parenthood can maybe change our compassion in the world at large, change how we interact with people generally. There's not a lot of research on that at all. What there is, is looking at maternal aggression and defensiveness and how becoming a parent can like heighten this like in-group protection. So our desire to protect people from outside threats, as if like parenthood is somehow going to like heighten the worst impulses of us to be guarded socially and like to shut down kind of and, and protect our own. And I read those studies and I think like, that's not actually how I feel. Like I actually feel this like broadening of like my circle of compassion. And I'm fascinated by this idea of like, since I'm like mirroring this in other parents, like, is it possible that caregivers become an in-group of their own? Like now we are connected to all of the other people who are doing this work and to other children, like you said. And what does that mean? If we like really explored that, what kind of power would there be in parenthood that maybe we don't always recognize? That's such a powerful question. And it's unsurprising that it's under-researched, right? Because this whole area is pretty under-researched. Okay, so we've talked about three sort of really big changes to the brain and why that's important and how understanding that would help someone. Is there anything else that is really important for people to know about how their brain changes in parenthood? 
One thing I would say is we so often talk about mommy brain as like this fundamental neurodegenerative process that we are like compromised cognitively, that we're forgetful and frazzled. And that has so infiltrated, I think, into our cultural conversation around parenthood in really problematic ways. And there are some studies that show that particularly during pregnancy, that there are memory deficits associated with that time. But overall, parenthood is a neurodevelopmental stage. I mean, it is, we are growing in our capacities and, and there's some really fascinating studies that are coming out now that are looking at these big databases of brain imaging in Australia and in Europe. They're looking at people who are older in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and they're comparing parents and non-parents. And they're finding that parents have what the researchers call younger looking brains And it's this idea that parenthood, because it poses these complex challenges and really, you know, our kids keep us on our toes, like we have to constantly adjust to their needs and these complex social demands that parenthood may actually be neuroprotective over the long term. And I just love this idea because it is such a counterpoint to that idea that we are hindered somehow by this experience. And in in fact, the very opposite might be true. I think it's such an interesting point, isn't it? Because what I'm hearing and what's coming up for me is that from a neurological perspective, we are not becoming, quote unquote, more forgetful and less intelligent, which is the common narrative. I suspect this is something to do with the emotional and invisible load of parenthood which most mothers hold on to because I know at any given point I'm holding hundreds of things in my head about who's doing what who needs what when how our lives are you know functioning as a family I hold the majority of that and I think that gives me the feeling of being more forgetful and overwhelmed but what I'm hearing you say is that that is a different thing than actually our brain changing in that way and I think that's really important (laughs) Yes. I mean, so often as I was working on this book, I would tell friends or strangers or someone I'm sitting next to on a plane what I'm working on. And they would say, oh, you're writing about how my kids stole all my brain cells or you know, whatever. It is like the knee-jerk reaction when we talk about brains and motherhood to think that we've been undermined by it. And it's not true. As parents we have gone through essentially what I'm hearing you say is this neurobiological upgrade. Our brains are different. Like we said right at the top, we are remade. Based on everything that you've learned and all the conversations that you've had, and I'm sure the endless hours of thinking about this, (laughs) how can we use, best use these changes to our advantage? Like how can these changes be a superpower for us? It's such a good question. I think the first step is to talk about them, to talk about them with each other and to talk about our real experiences because it is a superpower in the sense that we are growing and changing through this. And it is so lost in the story of new parenthood. As soon as the baby arrives, our focus becomes child development, right? We spend all this time in prenatal care focused on our bodies. And then as soon as the baby comes, it's their bodies and well-being. And I just think there's such strength in this science in terms of the capacity, like caregiving and what that means 
for us as families and individuals and society and our planet, our capacity to do that work and to do that well and to connect with each other is so essential for everything. And the idea that it's not just gestational mothers who can do it, but fathers can too and other parents and that doing it then maybe builds in us this capacity to connect with each other. It's such a hopeful, like powerful message and it's not one we share. And so I guess the way to get to that point is to talk about it, right? Like to talk about it. And often that starts with sharing our struggles. Like this is a grueling process where we come out on the other side with really powerful adaptations that our families need and frankly, like our society needs. And so we can't get to that message without talking about the struggle first, I think. I love that phrase, powerful adaptations. So many of the leaders around the world right now that I admire are parents, often mothers. And I feel like they are doing such amazing work, partly because of what they've learned as parents. I really think like the superpower is in that in like embracing the value that we bring to our lives because we're parents, not in spite of it. And that is like rooted in a large degree to we're talking about like compassion and our ability to connect with one another. And there's such a message in in making sure that we sort of know all know about the hard parts, but like the hard parts get us to that place, that like place of like power and connection. And that needs more attention too. It's like the bumpy ride. You know, if you think about, I love you're comparing it to adolescence. It's like that bumpy ride of adolescence gets us to adulthood. That really bumpy ride of early parenthood gets us to, you know, the place where we feel potentially more empowered, more purposeful, more compassionate than ever before. I love making the comparison to adolescence because the teenage brain research is a little farther ahead, quite a bit farther ahead really than the parental brain research. And we've like taken that science to teenagers. Like we've taken it to them to help them understand who they are and what they're going through and what's happening with their mental health. And it's been so powerful for shifting the narrative around mental health and mental illness and helping them to feel like empowered in themselves. And it's such a good model, I think, for what we could do with parenthood too. Absolutely. And I always ask the same question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would say time. And I think I mean it two ways, really. You know, here in the United States, we are one of six countries in the world that doesn't have um, paid leave policy. And it's really shameful. And this research just highlights how necessary time with your baby is and time to heal and develop as a parent yourself and have that time to pay attention to them and learn them and learn yourself as a parent. So time in that sense, and also time just as in like patience, like give yourself time to go through these changes and that it's a process and you don't have to do it all right away. Beautiful. Thank you. Where can someone learn more about you and the book? Where does someone head to? Motherbrainbook.com. Perfect. Nice and easy. I'll pop a link to it in the show notes as well. Thank you, Chelsea. This has been absolutely incredible. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your interest. 
So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. 